0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you are alive, that your son has risen from the dead and that you care that we are not uncared for. God, that your benevolence is upon us. We love you, O God. Open our eyes this morning as we study the scripture. Open our eyes to know the truth. And may the truth... Set us free. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The minimum ACT score for the University of Duke. Any ideas what that is? 38. 38? Maximum is 36 on the ACT. Stephen is really smart. I didn't realize you had a 38. 30, I heard. Very close. That's 31. 31. Average score is about a 33 to 34. Um, University of Duke is filled with students who know how to take tests or know how to acquire a 31 on their ACT. Gregory and Marcia really wanted their daughter to go to Duke. Their daughter's first ACT score was a 23. Gregory and Marsha. Marsha was an alum and really wanted her daughter to be there. Minimum score is what? Like I said earlier, either you have to be really smart or know how to do what? How to come up with at least 31 on your ACT. Next time their daughter took the ACT, she ended up with a 34. (laughs) Impressive. Impressive. problem was that wasn't their daughter's real score. Their daughter, what they wanted for her and what she was was not quite the same thing. So uh, little did Gregory and Marcia know that who they asked to change her answers after she had taken the test was a F- FBI agent. And after paying around in total of $125,000 to get her ACT score and her SAT scores updated, they would be sentenced, have to face jail time, more fines, and not get a refund for their $125,000 payment. Sometimes people just aren't good enough in certain areas. Uh, there are minimum requirements, and sometimes people just don't match them. Uh, most of South Louisiana saw yesterday, that was Ole Miss, right? For Gregory and Marcia Abbott, it was their daughter's scores. For us, it may be something totally different. What we do understand is, from a spiritual sense, what the Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. And no amount of righteous deeds can overcome the unrighteousness that each of us has in our hearts. And the unrighteous deeds that each of us do as a reflection of our hearts. There is none righteous, no, not one. And this morning we proclaim and we celebrate that the only righteousness that's good enough is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God's Son. So this morning, if you have your Bible, would like to ask you to open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be focusing on the ten plagues and finishing up, but really focusing on and dialing in on the tenth plague. We will be reviewing the ten plagues. You may see a, um, a funny little picture behind me to give you a mental image of the plague. But I hope by the third week that you have these plagues memorized, understood, uh, and that we see the greater thing going on here. That it's not just God showing ancient Egypt something, but he's showing the world something. And that is that there is a problem with sin. There is a righteous God and there is a deliverance. So let's take a look at that together. Before we do that, though, let me read to you um, from our verse of the year. First John, chapter one, verse five through seven together in 2022. I remind you we'll be together tonight. Our unity service by Sorrel will be together Wednesday night preparing for being together next Sunday night for our fall outreach. Trunk or treat escape from Egypt. Hope you will be a part and support. it. First John one, five through seven. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is what? God is light. And in him there is no What? No darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, with him, we, will, we walk in. And while we walk in darkness, we do not practice the truth. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And what covers us? What cleanses us? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that is that cleansing that we look for. And that is the cleansing that we're going to see pictures of way back in Exodus, 1500 years before Jesus comes with Moses. This whole thing started uh, back with Joseph, if you remember. Joseph brought the people and his, uh, his family, Jacob's family, into Egypt. 400 years pass. And 430 years pass, and and we have the nation now of Israel, not just a family, but a nation of Israel who is in slavery. And God shows up and says, Pharaoh, Moses, you tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh responds with what question? What have we talked about over the last two weeks? What question? Who is the Lord? That I should let your people go. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? That is Exodus chapter 5 verse 2. I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? And so we have seen that the Lord answers that question very clearly Throughout the process, he hardens Pharaoh's heart, you see, uh, several times, Exodus chapter 7. And let's see how many of the plagues that you remember. What is plague number one? The river. The number one looks like a long river. River to blood. Plague number two. Frog skin coat. It's the frogs with the hanger to hang your frog skin coat on. Number three is frogs eat gnats. Number three. Gnats grow up and turn into flies, and then you've got five, which is what? Five stock, the livestock. We talked about that in our Sunday school class. Number six, in the bottom of that six, you've got that, that nasty boil, and the bottom of six, and if, if you didn't see my Facebook post earlier, Jay's Egyptian guy and, and us popping boils, you get ready. We're going to have some, some fun on Sunday night. Number six is boils number seven. Seven, just keep drawing the seven and you get a nice little string of lightning. You got the storm. you got the hailstorm that destroys everything. Number eight. Turn that eight sideways. you've got the eyes of a locust. That's number eight. Plague number eight is the locust. Plague number nine is what? Darkness. It's darkness because that comes right before plague number ten, which is the killing of the firstborn or the death of the firstborn, the, the most disastrous plague uh, for Egypt. Life, life is taken away. So with all that said, let's take some time this morning and look through the plague of the firstborn and how that points to something bigger than just merely Pharaoh's firstborn son dying. We've walked through these ten plagues and seen that throughout this, as I mentioned, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's hardened, it's hardened. He does not relent, and he continues to, as we looked at in our Sunday school class, resist the spirit. Resist what is right and true and what is of God. He is resisting what he knows, and he's seeing clear evidence of around him. I see the frogs. I see the gnats. I see the flies. I see the livestock dying. I see all of these things happening, and I'm resisting because I am Pharaoh. We have a problem, and that is this. The resistance of Pharaoh to be obedient to God is stirring the anger of God. And some may say, well, why is God picking on Pharaoh? Why is God picking on Pharaoh? And, and the answer is, well, because God has a plan. God has purpose to these things. And what we understand and what we're learning about the character and nature of God is what God does, he does with purpose. And I certainly have no right to question God, nor his motives, nor his deeds. But what we do see is why and we learn the character and nature of God because of what he's doing. Exodus nine sixteen says this, but for this purpose, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. I've got a reason for this and I'm proclaiming my power and my name in all the earth. And so God continues to pour out his wrath with purpose. He begins to pour out his power with purpose. Now, Pharaoh, you may think, well, golly, Pharaoh really, he, uh, he got the raw end of this stick, didn't he? But do I need to remind you about a little bit about Pharaoh's character? Do you remember at the beginning of the book of Moses? I'm sorry, the book of Exodus, what was going on with Moses? What did they have to do with Moses at the beginning of Exodus? Remember, there was a crisis. What did they do with Moses when he was a baby? Yeah, they had to make a little boat for him and float him down the Nile River. Why? Because Pharaoh was doing what? Pharaoh's destroying children, killing the Hebrew children, enslaving them, making their work harder. Pharaoh was someone who was disobedient to God in every way imaginable. The scripture is setting up Pharaoh as the antithesis of Moses, the one as disobedient to God as he could be in so many ways and that has a price. And this is what the Bible shows us over and over through many different pictures is there is a price for disobedience. There's an old hymn that I love. It's called Trust and Obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust God and be obedient to his commandments. And that was the the opposite really of what Pharaoh was doing. So here comes the tenth plague. And if you have your Bible Exodus 11 chapter 11 verse 4 we'll begin. Thus Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now listen to this. I'm going to ask you some questions. About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall do what? They shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne even to the firstborn of the slave girl who's behind the handmill and all of the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor will ever be again. What's going to happen about midnight? Firstborn are going to die. Now, we look at this and we say, oh, well, this is ironic, isn't it? Because at the beginning of Exodus, what was happening? children were were dying, and here we get to the Lord bringing the consequences to actions and saying and so if you believe that was right i 'm going to bring you what you believed i 'm going to bring your own thoughts upon you, and the firstborn is going to die and, and I began to think about this in conversations that I had with some folks this week uh, of challenging conversations with folks and, and and the question comes up from a lot of people is, well, does, does God have a right to do that? I talked with a couple of people over the last few weeks who've, who've lost family members and are blaming God for the loss of those family members. And here you have a situation where God is very clearly intervening and taking the life of family members of people. And we've got church members who've lost family members in car accidents to Disease to to things and we say, Man, that's that's tough. And some people blame God and they say, and, and I heard the statement this week. I don't know that there can be a God. Looking around at all the bad things that are happening in this world, if there is a God, I don't like him. Somebody told me that this week. Does God really have the right to do that? How do you respond to that question? I had another person tell me this week, does God really send people to hell? Your good God that you love sends someone to hell? you believe that? How do you respond to that? Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. There's a debate going on in Ezekiel's day, and he responds to something something similar. He says this. We got it up here. Behold, all souls are mine. That's an important way to start the rest of the verse. Because watch, the rest of the verse is, is, gets tricky. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now this is not the exact situation. But this is a situation where, where this sin passed from generation to generation. But here Ezekiel makes it very clear that God holds accountable the sinner for their sin. And he was clearing up a debate in Ezekiel's day. God holds accountable the sinner for their sin. And we have all heard, I think, in this building, the Roman road, in which says, For the wages of sin is what? Is death. And when you come to this, the story of Pharaoh, a lot of people avoid it or a lot of people use it as as fodder against Christians to say, this is the kind of God you believe in God who would take people's kids away from them. That God. That's not a God that I like. It's not a good look. Christian, we, we do not fabricate a God of our own liking. Many people have the misconception that a God is what I want him to be. And if he's not a God, if he's, if he's a God that I'm not happy with, then he can't exist at all. Or I don't want any part of him. But God is God. All souls are his. Now, I must explain to you, that is only part of the story. And and God casting judgment upon Pharaoh and upon the people of Egypt is only part of the story. But it's an important part of the story. But we can't stop there. So don't turn off the sermon yet. Don't turn off the preacher yet. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. The word Passover there is an introduced word. It's a word that has meaning behind it. It's Pesach. Say it in Hebrew, you got your funny language, but it's Pesach. It's also Pascal. some people call it. But the word for Passover literally means to skip. Not like, you know, what we do when we're trying to dance or have fun, but to skip, to Passover. If you've ever been out on the playground, I remember kindergarten, I was on the playground, they were picking football teams, and they didn't pick me. I was like, Have you looked? Come on, man. I can play. You know what they said? You can play or you can't play. The only way you can play is if you beat this guy in a race. So, you know what I did? Nate, you know what I did? I beat that kid in a race. I played football that day. But they passed over me. They passed over me. They skipped me. They didn't want me playing. I was the new kid, they didn't want me playing. Pascal means to skip over. And this this concept is one that is going to, to, to endure for many years. That God is a God who can hop over or skip over or create an exemption based on something. Now, I opened with the story of Duke and their entrance qualifications. parents thought hey i just pay some money we can make this happen not so fast here we have the judgment of god now remember i told you earlier there are none righteous no not one the lord is about to provide a way for an exemption of sorts for people who will now go back to my hymn miss belinda for people who will trust and obey. Thank you, Ms. Murray. There, will, there can be an exemption from God's wrath for those who will trust and obey. Let's look at it. Verse 22, next verse. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood from this pascal lamb. And touch the lentils and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of doors of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees what? The blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over, skip over, exempt the door and read that one next part out loud. And will what? You got that? Not allow the destroyer to enter your house and to strike you. So here it is. God's agent is what he calls here the destroyer. It is God's agent of wrath. Sent from God to execute judgment on those whom his wrath is upon. And in this case, it's the firstborn. But God creates an opportunity for those who will trust and obey his command. And put the blood on the lintel and the doorposts. God provides a way that for those who trust and obey, they can be saved from the coming wrath. Pretty neat principle, isn't it? Keep verse 22 up there for me, if you will, Tristan. Notice that God will not allow the destroyer, that God gives his restraint, that God steps in through the means of blood to stop his wrath from being executed. So let me say that again. Notice that God steps in by the means of blood to prevent his wrath from being executed. Now, as we read this from the New Testament, which we talked about this morning, didn't we try yeah. it The New Testament, we look at that and we can't help but think, oh, yes, I know what that is. That's the blood. That's the blood protecting that household from the wrath of God. I know where that comes from. That's all about Jesus. Because we as Christians understand that Jesus died on the cross, that his blood was shed for us, and that we can be saved because God stepped in by the blood and sent his son to save us from his wrath, and his wrath is not executed upon us. And we've talked about that already, this service, haven't we? You know what? We're not the only ones to figure that out. In fact, Peter figured it out. And I read this to you earlier. I'm going to read it again. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, But it was made known in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith, trust and obey. Beautiful. It's beautiful. Here's something to notice. Before Jesus came, the Passover was a ritual that the Lord continued to require. Do this. Do this regularly. So, question for you. Why do you think that the Lord required that to go on regularly? Why? Why must the Passover happen each year? I mean, it's a neat story. But why require this lamb to be killed and... The blood to be put on doorposts. Why? Why? And and I come up with with two reasons. Uh, Let me um, go read verse 24. And that's where the command comes. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. When you come to the land the Lord will give you, that he has promised you, you shall keep this service. So why? Why? And I, I came up with two reasons. You might come up with more. These are two I came up with. One would be to remember God's deliverance. For that story to be told over and over. Hey, remember what I did. Remember this concept that God steps in with the blood and prevents his wrath from being executed upon you. Remember that. And of course, the second is to look forward to God's final deliverance. So you have the Lord said, look back and remember God's deliverance. But look forward, and remember, God is going to bring a future deliverance. And we can look back and say, yeah, that, that is very clear to me. I understand that. The blood that God provides through another allows the wrath of God not to be executed upon me. That sounds like Jesus. And it all comes together. Trust and obey. Those who trust and obey are saved. look at Exodus twelve thirteen. another verse. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when, you, when I see the blood, I will skip over, pass over, give an exemption for you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's go back to the plagues one more time, if you will indulge me. First plague, What? Help me out. Without the pic. Oh, let's go without the pictures this time, Tristan. Let's go without the pictures. First plague is what? River. River to blood. Second plague is? Frogs? Third plague? Y'all got it? Fourth plague? Good job. Five? Six. Nasty Boil. Seven? Number eight. Locust. Number nine. Number ten? Wow, very impressed, very impressed, very impressed. Now, the first nine plagues are demonstrating God's power over these other gods, we've said. The other gods, the final one was the God Ray, the sun god, remember? But we've looked at some, even in our Sunday school class this morning, a lot of things tying together. But but lots of gods, the god of livestock, the gods of of frogs, all these gods that are being shown. God is a powerful god. God is great and mighty, and he demonstrates his power through Pharaoh, his hard heartedness. I am God. And then we get to the tenth plague. Not only does he demonstrate his power by taking life, but he also demonstrates his grace. He also demonstrates his grace. Because we do not recognize that God is a God merely of power, but that God is a God of grace. And at this point, as readers of the Old Testament, we go, he didn't have to save the firstborn of Israel. Do we forget what happens the next 40 years? How rebellious, stiff-necked, and nasty the children of Israel are? I can say it like this. Have you forgotten how stiff-necked and nasty and disobedient that you can be at times? It happens. But praise be to God, as God was gracious to save His people that day through the blood and not execute His wrath, even today, as we come and you're in the church house this morning, we are grateful that God has given the blood of another, his son, Jesus Christ, that his wrath is not executed upon us and that we are in his good and benevolent grace this morning. God is gracious and we celebrate that. We sing songs. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Grace, grace, God's grace. Marvelous grace. Grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. We write songs. We sing songs. We proclaim these truths. God is a gracious God. But He is not so gracious to all, but to those who will trust and obey His commands. You see, there were those that that didn't obey back then. And there are those who do not trust and obey even today. And so, friend, if you were here this morning and you've lived your life in your own way, not submitting to what God would have for you, not submitting to the truth that Jesus is Lord and he's called you to different purposes than just what you can come up with yourself. If you've lived a life where you say, I know the Bible says, but I'm going to call you today to trust and obey that God's word is best, that God's word is true. And that to find true hope and life and peace, it is in trusting and obeying every word of God and submitting yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I offer that you can do that today. Paul specifically called Jesus the pascal, the pasach, pasach, rather, lamb. Look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says this, and this is his call to the people in Corinth. Cleanse out the old leaven that you might be the new lump. In other words, get rid of the old religion and embrace the new. As you are really... As you really are unleavened. For Christ our Paschal Lamb or Pesca Lamb has been sacrificed. Now let me give you one more time. What, what, what did they put on the lentils and the doorpost? What did they put on there again? Blood. The blood. Right? Important. That blood and the blood of every animal that was sacrificed in the old covenant regime. The old covenant time pointed to a later blood. And Jesus knows that. So Jesus at the Last Supper, and Clay recently taught this Wednesday night. But at the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup, Luke chapter 22, we see this. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten it, he said, this cup is poured out for you is the new covenant what, church? In my blood. He's drawing them back to these Remember, it's, it's Passover season. And they're celebrating the meal together. The next day is Passover in which he will be slain. And Jesus clearly draws them back to say, this is the new covenant, not of the blood of a lamb, but the blood of the lamb. This is the new covenant which I'm giving to you. All right. Let me close out this series, if you will, with a few thoughts. The question, the first question that Pharaoh asked was Who is the Lord? Right? As we've studied through the Ten Plagues, let me give you a few thoughts that I've come up with of who is the Lord. Maybe answers to that question. Right? You may have other answers. These are ones that I came up with. I'd love for you to share them with me if if I don't get yours. Who is the Lord? Number one, God is is powerful. What do we learn about God through this? He is a powerful God. He's more powerful than anything else. And remember, he says, these are things you'll see like you've never seen before in Egypt, nor you'll never see again. Because God is going to do the things that are mighty and powerful. Number two, God has purpose. So one, God's powerful. Two, God has purpose. Remember, he raised Pharaoh up for this. We, we see that Jesus was from the foundation of the world. He was foreknown, or in other words, foreplanned to do this. It's part of God's foreknowledge and predestining plan to do this. That's what Peter says. So God has a purpose in all of this. Thirdly, God ha- will save those who trust and obey. God is powerful. His power has a purpose. And his purpose is to call those who will trust him to be obedient. The purpose of that whole night was to see who's going to be obedient. The purpose for us as Christians today, who's going to be obedient? Will you be obedient to what God has called you to do? God is powerful, he has purpose. He will save those who trust and obey. God uses blood as a means for salvation. We see that he saved us with the precious blood of Christ. Let me give you one more. The book of Revelation. Brother Bill, he he loved the book of Revelation. These flowers, by the way, are in honor of him. His birthday was Friday. And Miss Pat, it's so great to see you here this morning. Uh, Everybody turn to Miss Pat and say, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Um, Such a special thing. Uh, She has overcome so much. Brother Bill loved Revelation. And Revelation 5, verse 11 and 12 says this. I say this because here's what we've learned. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is what, church? The Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Jesus, the Paschal, the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, blessing. This is Jesus. He's worthy. Of him. So, God is powerful. He has a purpose. He's calling those to trust and obey Him in His purpose. He's going to use the blood. To point out his son who deserves worship. So I ask you this morning, what is your response to all of this? God has a plan. He powerfully works his plan. He calls us to trust and obey him, to live it out. And as we trust and obey him, we realize that he deserves our worship. So after studying these 10 plagues, Christians... What do we do? Well, we respond. And my encouragement is to remember the words of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus. John 1.29, he said this. The scripture says this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, let's read this together, church. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus. So, I hope that you've seen all of this coming together now. We've seen the ten plagues. We've seen that God is powerful, but yet God is gracious. And He calls those to trust and obey because He's given an opportunity for a passing over those who will trust and obey. For those who don't trust and obey, His wrath remains on them. John 3:36. And for those who do not turn to God, the price is eternal condemnation and wrath from God. But for those who will trust and obey, who will receive his grace, who will turn to him, repent of their sin, believe in Jesus Christ. Life, 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 eternal life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'll close with this passage once again, or this statement from Peter. People say, who is Jesus? Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And Peter wisely replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? If so, trust, obey, and worship. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you thanking you for your word, thanking you for the book of Exodus, thanking you for your son. Lord, we are asking for those who may be here or listening today who do not trust and obey the son of God, Jesus Christ. Would you impart faith? Would you quicken their souls, bring salvation? that they might know and love you and be saved from impending doom. God, for we Christians who do trust and do obey, give us the, the joy in our worship each week as we worship together. Give us the joy of worship as we study and worship you alone. God, also let us proclaim and tell of the nations that Jesus Christ is the Lamb who was slain and that sinners who repent, can be saved from the coming wrath of God. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.